For the next few minutes, let me spin you a web about the woman who created one of the most iconic creatures in horror movie history and her fantastic life story. That and more on this episode of Footnoting History. What's up, Footnoters? It's Josh. And this might come as a shock to you, but I'm not here to discuss the finer points of something that has to do with Christianity this time around. I mean, if that's what you came to this episode for, fear not. We'll be talking about it again soon enough. It's really kind of difficult for me to stay away for too long. About a year before wanting to do this episode, I had never heard the name Millicent Patrick before. Chances are that I never would have learned about her either if it wasn't for my wife recommending that our history faculty reading group read The Lady from the Black Lagoon by Mallory O'Meara. And I'll admit, I wasn't into the idea at first. I'm not really into the history of pop culture as much as I'm into weird and obscure religious stuff. But once I sat down to read about Patrick's life, I was hooked. I will long sing the praises of Omera's really masterful biography. And honestly, if I ever teach a history methods class, I'll probably assign it to my students. Millicent Patrick was born Mildred Elizabeth Fulvia de Rossi to parents Camille Charles Rossi and Elise Albertina Bill in El Paso, Texas. Her family had moved around quite a bit before her birth, largely due to her father's career in structural engineering. At one point, her father, Camille, and his career led him to Mexico City, where he worked on the Palace of Fine Arts under an Italian architect. Most notably, at least according to family history, Camille had a run-in with the legendary Pancho Villa during the Mexican Revolution, and while Camille was working on another project, the La Boquilla Dam. Villa apparently detained Camille after learning that he was an engineer, thinking that Camille could help him manufacture artillery for the revolution. Camille convinced Pancho Villa that this certainly was not the case, and Villa let him go. Two years after Millicent's birth, her father's career took the family to Peru, Following the death of her mother's mother, however, the family moved back to California via Argentina and New York City. And once back in California, Camille's career got its biggest break yet. Camille came across a want ad for a structural engineering job in San Simeon, California. The ad had been placed by the famous architect Julia Morgan, long known for being the first woman to gain admission to l'Ecole Nationale Supérieure des Beaux-Arts in Paris, and the first woman to be a licensed architect in California. Over her career, Morgan designed and built over 700 buildings in California, including the Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. Dear listeners, I imagine that you might be putting two and two together here. Yes, Camille Rossi was applying to be the lead structural engineer under Julia Morgan to work on Hearst Castle. He got the job. Hearst 
was best known for being the media mogul of the late 19th and early 20th century. It would take a full episode to really hit just the highlights of Hearst's career, but many consider him to be responsible for, among other things, pushing the American public to support the Spanish-American War through what historians have called yellow journalism. After purchasing the newspaper, the New York Morning Journal, and starting the New York Evening Journal, Hearst was actually competing with a guy named Joseph Pulitzer for the most readers in New York City. And if sales is the metric, Hearst won. He beat the guy that the Pulitzer Prize is named for. And look, if that doesn't convince you of Hearst's influence on media, the movie Citizen Kane was about him. And here in 1920, Hearst wanted to build a summer home in San Simeon on 168,000 acres of land that he had acquired over the years through inheritance and purchases. And if you've never seen what Hearst Castle looks like, I've put some pictures on the page for our episode so that you can have a look. I'm particularly impressed by the Neptune Pool. It's absolutely gorgeous. It was during Millicent's time at Hearst Castle that she met the woman that she came to idolize, Millicent Hearst, William Randolph Hearst's wife, though not his true love. William Hearst did seem to be madly in love with a woman named Marion Davies, who was often at Hearst Castle. After 1925, Marion Davies became the hostess of the palatial estate, right around the same time that William and Millicent Hearst formally separated. It was Millicent Hearst's glamour that attracted Millicent Patrick, then still Mildred Rossi. So much so, as you've probably deduced, that when it came time to adopt a new Hollywood identity, Millicent Patrick adopted the name of the woman that she idolized so much. Well, after some disputes with Julia Morgan, William Randolph Hearst let Camille Rossi go as the structural engineer of the Hearst Castle project. But with Morgan's help, generously, Rossi landed a job as a state engineer for the state of California, and the family moved to Glendale in the southern part of the state. After she turned 18, Millicent Patrick, then still Mildred Rossi, enrolled at Glendale Junior College, where she cultivated her talent in the visual arts. Eventually, her artistic ambitions led her to transfer away from Glendale Junior College and to Schoenard Art Institute, one of the leading art schools in Southern California. Schoenard's founder, Nelbert Schoenard, probably deserves her own episode, but suffice it to say for now, dear listeners, the woman had a tremendous influence on 20th century American art. In the 1930s, Nelbert Schoenard started visiting this company called Disney Studios, which was just a short distance away from the school. And like most institutions of learning, Schoenard was interested in seeing what the pros were doing in industry so that they could tailor their curriculum accordingly. And Disney, starting to ramp up animation production, needed more artists. 
So the school and the House of Mouse made a deal to allow Shoenard teachers to sit in and watch the animation happen. And of course, this eventually led to Shoenard doing a lot of training for Disney animators. Later down the line, a pipeline developed. Shoenard students ended up being hired by Disney, since Walt himself was able to see the talent pool firsthand. Walt Disney himself discovered Millicent's talents and asked her to come work for him. And of course she said yes. At first, Millicent worked in a bullpen of sorts as an inker. In animation, inkers are the ones who put the ink onto the celluloid film that eventually becomes the animated feature. It's a translation work of a sort, taking the art of the animator's drawings and inking it onto the film. It takes a delicate hand and is delicate work. After about a year of working as an inker, Millicent, now 24 years old, was promoted to animation and effects along with another woman, Marcia James. At this point, they were a part of only a handful of women in a house full of male animators. In 1940. I just think of how the women were treated in the show Mad Men, but worse. In animation and effects, Millicent worked as a color animator. As much as I've tried to understand what separates a key animator and a color animator, the difference still eludes me. But from what I gather, key animators do the main sequential drawings, while color animators just use and add color. If you're confused, so am I. Maybe a listener can help us out. In any event, Millicent and Marsha went to work on a film that you've probably heard about before, Fantasia. Their work comprises four of the eight segments of the film, including the creation of the iconic demon Chernabog in the Night on Bald Mountain sequence. When I read this in Mallory O'Mara's biography of Millicent Patrick, I gasped. I immediately exclaimed, She worked on Chernabog? Look, listeners, as someone who's a bit obsessed with the mythology of the devil, demons, and evil spirits in the Christian tradition, Chernabog looms large in my imagination. My very protective mother wouldn't allow me to watch much of anything that had evil in it when I was younger. She would even try to mute the television when Mumra of Thundercats was talking. But I was allowed to watch Fantasia. So Chernabog is my childhood impression of what the devil was. So reading that Millicent Patrick had a hand in Chernabog's creation was a really big deal for me. After Fantasia, Millicent worked on another movie that you know, Dumbo. She helped bring a lot of the big sequences with flying elephants and circus animals to life. However, there were serious labor tensions with Disney animators, and they eventually went on strike. Add to this that Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, and then Pearl Harbor happened in December of 1941, so Disney had to shift gears, and it ended in layoffs, including Millicent. For the next several years, Millicent, at this point still going by her given name Mildred Rossi, 
floated around the United States working as a hostess for brands at different trade shows and as a background actress where she could find work. She also started crafting a more alluring resume and persona. She listed herself as the first female animator at Disney, a very contested claim, and started to play around with her name a bit too. There's a lot to this story that involves some extramarital affairs and some really juicy gossip stuff that I'll encourage you to read in Omira's biography of Millicent Patrick, but for brevity's sake, Millicent started calling herself Mill Fitzpatrick, which, after the collapse of a relationship, changed to just Millpatrick. And she also started to tell a story that she was born Mildred Elizabeth Fulvia de Rossi, an Italian baroness. And she had the look of royalty, and internet fact checkers didn't exist yet, so it's not like anybody could check if this was true, even if they wanted to. In any event, Millicent soon made her way back to Hollywood, but in a much different role. Her background work meant that she spent a lot of time on studio lots, and Universal Studio Lot led her to a brand new opportunity. Lest we forget Millicent's artistic talents, she kept her skills in drawing and design sharp. While on the Universal Lot, she met a man named Bud Westmore, who would play a significant role in the next steps of Millicent's career. What you need to know about Bud Westmore is that he was part of a family that was a dynasty of makeup artists. It began with George Westmore, a hairdresser who immigrated to the United States from Britain and became well-known in the early days of Hollywood. His sons, Monty, Percival, Ernest, Walter, Hamilton, a.k.a. Bud, and Frank followed in his footsteps. Each of them headed the makeup department at one of the major Hollywood studios, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and a whole handful of other smaller studios, too. After recognizing her talent, and being very attracted to her, Bud Westmore decided to hire Millicent to join his makeup department at Universal as a designer. After a few months of working on other projects, Bud Westmore had Millicent designing monsters for Universal's slate of monster flicks, something that Universal had become known for. She lived up to expectations, and when it came time in 1953 for Universal's next big monster film release, Bud Westmore knew exactly who he wanted designing the monster, Millicent Patrick. There's quite a bit of back and forth about the creature from the Black Lagoon, from arguments over the script, to whether it was appropriate enough for approval from the Motion Pictures Association of America, which was worried that the script revealed a far too sexual relationship between the monster and its human female captive. There was also disagreement over the monster's look. Eventually, though, Bud Westmore was able to wrestle the design to his department, and Millicent took center stage. Before the creation of the costume, or the suit, itself, 
Millicent Patrick drew the creature, taking inspiration from prehistoric reptiles, amphibians, and fish. According to O'Mara's research, Millicent took a lot of inspiration from the Devonian period. And if you've ever seen the creature from the Black Lagoon, you know she knocked it out of the park. Now that they had their creature, Universal had to promote the movie, and Millicent was the perfect person for the job. After all, she had spent all of that time prior to her career at Universal working trade shows and promoting brands. So, in January of 1954, Universal sent Millicent out on a promotional tour for the new film. But this is the 1950s we're talking about here, so the focus of the tour wasn't always really on the creature, but on Millicent's own beauty. In fact, when Universal conceived of the tour, they wanted to call it the beauty who created the beast. Still, that would have put at least some focus on the fact that Millicent created the creature and just also happened to be a beautiful woman. Bud Westmore didn't like this. He wanted the spotlight for himself. He wanted credit for the creature. So the team went back to the drawing board and came up with a name, The Beauty Who Lives With The Beast. This satisfied Westmore, for now, and allowed the studio to send her out with monsters other than the ones that Millicent had created. And Millicent was a hit. But all of the attention paid to Millicent made Bud Westmore even angrier. He marched into Universal's offices and complained about how he was sure Millicent was going to take all of the credit for the creature. He sought guarantees that he would get credit for the whole of the creature's creation. He demanded that Millicent renounce any credit and give all of the credit for the creature to him. And she agreed to it. So Millicent went on tour and did everything that Bud Westmore demanded. She took credit for nothing, but the public and the media fell in love with her. So in write-ups about the tour and in the press surrounding the premiere of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Bud Westmore's name never appeared, and it made him even angrier. And Bud Westmore blamed Millicent for all of it. While still out on tour, Bud Westmore went to Universal's executives and told them that Millicent was no longer welcome in his makeup department. And despite the attempts of Universal's executives to soothe Bud Westmore's ego and to get him to back off of his decision to freeze Millicent out, and despite a successful premiere of The Creature of the Black Lagoon, Bud Westmore went unchanged. Millicent was out at Universal. Millicent's starbound career came to a screeching halt as well. She continued doing background acting, but she never got the same kind of opportunity that she had at Universal. Despite the clear failings of Universal to protect Millicent from the fragile ego of Bud Westmore, Millicent Patrick's legacy lives in the creature, a testament to her talent and hard work. It lives through the haunting animation of Chernobog and Fantasia. It lives in the women 
who came after her and broke through Hollywood barriers, even if many of those barriers remain intact. She was a star, despite what Bud Westmore did to write her out of film history, and we would do well to remember her name. Millicent's story is recognizable in so many women, both inside and outside of Hollywood and film, and if anything, I hope that her story provides you, dear listeners, with a bit of inspiration alongside the rage you must feel at Bud Westmore. So next Halloween, or on a spooky weekend, load up a copy of The Creature from the Black Lagoon and let Millicent Patrick's creation thrill you, stir your emotions, and make you awe at her talent. You won't regret it. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Footnoting History. Don't forget to head over to footnotinghistory.com for visuals, links, and sources related to Millicent Patrick. If you'd like to interact with us, we're on Twitter at at HistoryFootnote, or Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as at FootnotingHistory. We'd love to hear from you, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>